This evening, our scripture reading is taken from Ephesians 4. We'll be reading from verses 17 through 32. And then after we read from the Word of God, we'll also read a portion of the Heidelberg Catechism, Lord's Day 33. Ephesians 4 is found, if you're using the Pew Bible, on page 1,345. And Lord's Day 33 in the Forms and Prayers book is found on page 238. Uh, We remind ourselves that we are entering into the third section of the Heidelberg Catechism that deals with how we are to express our thankfulness to the Lord for His saving graces. Uh, This evening we'll be looking at uh, the doctrine or the truth of conversion. And that's why we've chosen to read Ephesians 4, beginning at verse 17. So hear now together the reading of the Word of God. This I say, therefore, and testify in the Lord, that you should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk, and the futility of their mind, having their understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the blindness of their heart, who, being past feeling, have given themselves over to lewdness to work all uncleanness with greediness." But you have not so learned Christ, if indeed you have heard him and have been taught by him as the truth is in Jesus, that you put off concerning your former conduct the old man which grows corrupt according to the deceitful lust, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and that you put on the new man which was created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, putting away lying, let each one of you speak truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your wrath, nor give place to the devil. Let him who stole steal no longer, but rather let him labor, working with his hands what is good, that he may have something to give him who has need. Let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth, but what is good for necessary edification, that it may impart grace to the hearers. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. And be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. And thus far for now, our reading from the Word of God, we then turn to Lord's Day 33, which has four questions. The first asking, what is involved in genuine repentance or conversion, and the answer two things, the dying away of the old self and the rising to life of the new. Question 89 continues by asking, what is the dying away of the old self and the answer to be genuinely sorry for sin and more and more to hate and run away from it? Question 90 asks, what is the rising to life of the new self and the answer wholehearted joy in God through Christ? and a love and delight to live according to the will of God by doing every kind of good work. Question 91 concludes Lord's Day 33 by asking, but what are good works? And the answer, only those which are done out of true faith, conform to God's law, and are done for His glory, and not those based on our own opinion or human tradition. A congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, of course, all of Scripture is inspired and therefore is profitable, and this applies as well to the sayings of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. But there are some sayings that are so concise, so direct, 
that they just force you to kind of stop and listen carefully. One of those statements of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ is found in Matthew 18, verse 3. He says, Assuredly, maybe if we grew up with the King James, we remember the word verily, certainly, absolutely. I say to you, unless you are converted, you will by no means enter into the kingdom of heaven. Although spoken over 2,000 years ago, the Word of God is timeless. And that statement and the truth contained in it still applies today. Unless you, unless I am converted, we will by no means enter into the kingdom of heaven. Conversion is a prerequisite for entering into the fullness of the experience of eternal life. We must, we must be changed, not by just merely self-help, not just by some external reforms, not just by adjusting some habitual patterns within our life, but we must be changed by the sovereign work of God's grace within our very heart, within our mind, within our will, within our affections. And I want to consider this teaching tonight as we have it expressed, for example, in Ephesians 4 and summarized uh, in Lord's Day 33 underneath the theme of the conversion of the Christian. Noticing, first of all, the importance of conversion Secondly, the realm of conversion. And then thirdly, the evidence of conversion. So the conversion of the Christian, the importance, the realm, and the evidence of conversion. And when we get to the importance of conversion, I want to look at this with a theological explanation, and then also as it is biblically proclaimed. But we set it against the backdrop of so much of what is said within our culture, and also, sadly, so much of what is so often said within churches, broadly speaking, that would seek to reassure us that we're really okay. The general spirit of the age is to tell human beings, everything's good. You're good. But congregation, apart from God's grace, that simply isn't true. Theologically speaking, we must be turned and we must turn. Notice I use the passive tense and the active tense because the active, our turning is a result of our being turned. And boys and girls, that's, that's all the word conversion really means. It means to be changed or it means to turn. Now maybe you have it, uh, boys and girls, again, maybe this summer you, you were out working in the yard or playing in the yard, and, and you come in and your clothes are dirty. There's dirt there, maybe you've worked up a sweat, and your mother says, go change your clothes, go wash up. And so maybe you go and, and you change your clothes, you wash up, you, you put 
new clothes on, clean clothes on. That, that's something of what we mean when we talk about conversion. But we're not talking about clothes. We're talking about our heart. Our heart must be changed because by nature, apart from God's grace, our hearts are characterized by sin. And I am so often confronted with how unpopular these teachings are. And for a bit of transparency, I have it numerous times when I'm preaching, in the back of my mind there's a voice going, these teachings are not common. These teachings are not popular. And the vast majority of pulpits within our land are not proclaiming these teachings. And, and what happens is it forces me to go to Scripture, and it forces me to say, are, are these things true? I'm not so concerned if they're popular, but are they true? Am I giving a true diagnosis of the human condition apart from God's grace? And so we go to a text such as Psalm 14, verse 2 and 3, which you will perhaps pick up as being quoted by the Apostle Paul in the opening chapters of Romans. And in Psalm 14, verse 2 and 3, it says, The Lord looks down from heaven upon the children of men to see if there are any who understand, who seek God. They have all turned aside. They have together become corrupt. There is none good. No, not one. And so it is true that you and I must be converted because apart from conversion, we're not good. And apart from conversion, we don't have life. You can broaden this out and you can begin to talk as our confession summarizes uh, about this dying away of the old self and the rising to life of the new and in the application of salvation, and it's helpful, congregation, to distinguish, not to separate, but to distinguish the accomplishment of salvation, what Jesus Christ has done when he was conceived, when he suffered, uh, when he was crucified, when he was buried, when he descended into hell, and then also his steps of exaltation when he rose, when he ascended into heaven, when he's now seated at the right hand of the Father. And all of that is the bedrock of our salvation. But there is also what theologians call the application of salvation, where the Holy Spirit takes that new life that Jesus Christ has accomplished and actually applies it into our hearts so that we become not merely those who profess something, but those who possess something spiritual life. Well, we continue with trying to solidify the argument that this is biblical truth. Uh, a few passages, one I'll just quote, the other one I'd encourage you to turn to. Acts 3 verse 19, apostolic preaching of the apostle Peter, and he summarizes his sermon with this exhortation, repent therefore and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out, so that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. And then if you are inclined to turn to Romans 6, and here also we see the importance, the necessity of a genuine conversion. Romans 6, verses 12 through 14. 
And notice that our authors of the catechism, they, they put this word in question 88. What is involved in genuine repentance or conversion? Because they understood, and Scripture also warns against this, that there is what's known as the whitewashed sepulcher. Uh, there is a feigned conversion, a pretend conversion. There is the dangerous tendency of putting up a facade that has no real spiritual substance behind it. Our instructors, they want to know, tell me what is involved in a genuine, sincere experience of conversion. And the two things they mentioned, the dying away of the old self and the rising to life of the new, are what is also mentioned in Romans 6, verse 12 through 14. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body, that you should obey it in its lust, and do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. I want to draw this first point to a conclusion with this straightforward application. You, I, must be converted initially and continually. That sets up the transition into our second point, the realm of conversion. And, and by realm here, I'm, I'm struggling with where does conversion take place? Where does a genuine conversion take place? And you'll notice if you're following the outline that it takes place in the realm of understanding and then the realm of conduct. And it's important that we don't invert those subpoints. You see, many times when we think of conversion or when we think of change, we automatically go to the external behavior. But genuine conversion is something deeper than that. Genuine conversion is a spiritual act that takes place in our understanding. If you go to the words of our text from Ephesians chapter 4, just look at verses 17 and 18. This I say, therefore, and testify in the Lord, that you should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk in the futility of their mind, having their understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the blindness of their heart. Quite an indictment against the unbelieving world. Futile in their understanding. They just don't understand. And they can't understand. Nor can you and I, apart from the grace of God. We, we can't understand anything rightly. We, we ultimately, apart from God's grace, can't know anything in its real essence. And, and that's why when you look at the world around us, you see so many people characterized by either just a futility of life. If you were to ask them, what are you living for? Their, their answers would be, would be so trivial. But if you press them even further and say, you know, what is the meaning of life? Why were we created? What are we here to do? 
The unbeliever simply doesn't know, and they can't know. But when a person underneath the sovereignty of God's redeeming grace experiences the work of conversion, they come to know because their understanding is positively impacted by the regenerating grace of the Holy Spirit. And so a a very well-known text I trust by nearly all of us is what's found in Romans 12, verse 2. And there the Apostle Paul emphasizes the priority of the mind or of the understanding He says, do not be conformed to this world. Don't walk in the futility of this world. Don't walk in the darkness of this world. Don't be naive like this world. But be transformed, be changed, be converted by the renewing of your mind. By the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. You notice if you go back once again to Ephesians 4, this is reiterated in verse 23, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind. We live in an anti-intellectual age. There's much, much, much more emphasis put on people's emotions than there is upon people's intellect. But the Bible stresses while understanding the legitimate emotions that we have as created beings in the image of God, the Bible emphasizes the priority of the mind and of the understanding. And that our minds are to be formed and shaped by the revelation of God as contained within His Word. I want to ask do you appreciate the importance of your mind? The ability to know. The ability to receive the revelation of God. The ability with the blessing of the illuminating work of the Holy Spirit to reflect upon that revelation of the Word of God. And do you appreciate the importance of having your mind consistently influenced by the Word of God? Just in passing, this is why in Reformed churches such priority has always been given to the preaching of the Word. And also in our personal, individual, spiritual exercises, this is why the emphasis has always been placed upon reading and studying the Word of God. Because Reformed theologians have understood the primacy of the intellect, the primacy of the mind, that we might know God, that we might receive His self-revelation. And so I would encourage you, especially as we anticipate the commencement of our educational activities, to saturate your mind with the Word of God. So, so, so many activities are engaged in. And many of them legitimate in and of themselves, but let us resolve that we will not compromise on the importance of having our minds influenced by the Word of God. It's been said, 
and I think you can understand it rightfully from a biblical perspective, as a man thinketh, so he is. I, I like to modernize that language a little bit, and, and I tell my children from time to time, you do what you do because you believe what you believe. And it's true, we do what we do because we believe what we believe. Now, if our minds are being transformed, if our minds are being converted, if our minds are being illuminated, that will have a practical demonstration in our conduct. And what we're doing here is simply following the structure of Ephesians 4. The Apostle Paul has emphasized, be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and having this renewal of mind, the old man with his deceitful lust will be put off more and more, and the new man uh, with the new expressions of, of holiness, of righteousness, will come to manifest itself more and more. And then you notice he gets in, and we looked at this passage of Scripture uh, a few months ago, he gets into the practicalities of this. Put away lying and speak that which is true, because if you know that God is true and God is not a liar, if you know that speaking truth is morally good and that lying is morally evil, if you know those things, then generally speaking, there will be a pattern of behavior in which you not perfectly, but nevertheless, sincerely will be committed to speaking truth. And we can drop down and we can look just a little bit at what you see there in verse 29, verse 31, verse 32. If you really come in your, in your soul and in your mind to reflect upon the grace and the mercy of our God, shown to you, shown to me, sinners, if, if we really have our minds just submerged within the grace and the mercy of our God. That will have an impact. Then we will, verse 32, be kind to one another. You see, it's, you, you can speak to someone and you can say, you know what, you need to be more kind. You can say that over and over and over and over and over. But until they really come to experience and have their soul overwhelmed with the kindness of God shown towards them, it's only then that they will be kind one to another. And it's only when the soul is enraptured with the reality of the forgiveness of sins, when our minds are well instructed that God out of His free grace and mercy has forgiven me all of my sins, then all of a sudden my posture and my interaction with my fellow man will become more and more characterized by forgiving one another. You see, it's impossible that my mind can be saturated with the reality of the forgiveness of sins that I have from God and then turn around and go, well, I'm not going to forgive you. That's a disconnect. Something's wrong. The person who habitually is characterized by a bitter wrath, anger, clamor, and evil speaking doesn't really understand the nature of God. And the person who is characterized by an unwillingness to be kind towards their fellow man and to be forgiving in their spirit really hasn't had their mind conformed to the Word of God as it testifies of how our God has forgiven us. Conversion takes place in the realm of the understanding that then impacts the realm of the conduct. 
And that will display itself with the evidence of conversion. And our third point, I just want to draw your attention to what our authors of the Heidelberg Catechism say in answer 90. The question is, what is the rising to life of the new self? Uh, This new spiritual life that begins to display itself as regeneration manifests itself in a person's life. What is the rising to life of the new self? Notice the way they begin. Wholehearted joy. Now, many of us were, were well, well versed in Reformed theology. If I were to ask you, what is the first evidence of conversion? Would you have answered wholehearted joy? Wholehearted joy. How can it be any different? As my mind is more and more shaped and conformed to the revelation of God, as I come to know God as He is, as infinitely good and the overflowing fountain of all good, who has lavishly poured out so many benefits and blessings to us, yes, even as we live in the midst of a broken world, how can we not be characterized by a wholehearted joy? But notice, the joy isn't just some giddy happiness. It's joy in God through Christ. And a love and a delight. You know, so often the, the catechism's teaching is, is painted as being cold, academic, dry, dusty. But properly understood, it's, it's nothing, of, nothing of that. And, and at times the Christian life is characterized as well as dry, boring. There's the mischaracterization of the Puritan movement. And I stress the mischaracterization because this is not what the Puritans were about. That reformatory group, especially in England, Uh, in the 17th century, but the mischaracterization went this way. Puritanism was the dreadful fear that someone in the world was having fun. And at times, that's the way people look at us. But conversion, it should display itself in our lives with a joy, a wholehearted joy. Uh, that describes itself uh, with the evidence of righteousness and holiness. Out of this joy then flow forth the good works. See, the good works are not motivated by some fearful desire to try to obtain a right standing with God. And this is really where the Reformers flipped the Roman Catholic Church upside down because the Roman Catholic Church emphasized good works were stepping stones for the escaping of purgatorial punishment and perhaps an ability to appease somehow the, the wrath of a vengeful God who scowled and scorned down from the heights of heaven. And so prior to the Reformation, there was very, very little joy within the church. 
But you see, when the doctrine of justification was rediscovered by Martin Luther and and many others, but Martin Luther being one of them, when they came to understand that a man is justified by faith and by faith alone and has peace with God as he receives the alien righteousness of Christ, then it renewed the spirit of joy. And this then displayed itself also in good works. And good works are simply those which proceed out of true faith. Uh, and those which then conform to God's law and aim for God's glory. See, when our minds are impacted by what God is and what He has done, uh, then our great desire in all of life should be to glorify God. And this takes very, very practical exercises within our life. And so there is an antithesis between everything that the Christian does with that with the non-Christian does. And sometimes I try to express this to people, and they almost step back and they go, are, are, you for, are you for real? Yes, I am for real. There's a difference to the way the mechanic turns a bolt and the way a non-Christian mechanic turns the bolt. The non-Christian mechanic is just there just grinding out his daily activities so he can hopefully earn a dollar, so he can waste it in some vanity pursuit maybe at the end of the week. But the Christian who has a biblical worldview as his mind is formed and shaped by the understanding of the Word of God knows that he is bringing glory to God as he's reflecting something in the image of the God who works. And I am under no impression that every day is just then a happy little song throughout all of the hours, but you should be able to see something different even in how the Christian talks about their daily activities as compared to the non-Christian. Because the Christian, he or she understands that their life is all bound up in this wholehearted joy in God through Christ, loving and delighting to show forth thanksgiving for the wonderful work of salvation. As we draw to a close, I hope that I have, or more correctly that the Scriptures have, reminded us of something of the nature of conversion, but especially of the necessity of conversion. We talk about conversion initially at the moment of regeneration, and for many of us, that that took place in our earliest days. There must be an initial conversion at some point in time, maybe even in our mother's womb, but there must be a continual conversion. And in light of Matthew 18, verse 3, I want to ask you, as I ask myself, are you being converted? Because the words of Jesus Christ, assuredly I say to you, unless you are converted, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Amen. Our Father in heaven, We cry out to you that you would influence our minds, grant us spiritual understanding. We thank you for the work of redemption. We thank you for the testimony of your word. We pray for the blessing of the Holy Spirit. And we pray for the ongoing work of conversion.
within our lives as individual persons, within our lives as families, throughout the generations of the covenant, and we pray for the work of conversion within this congregation. Would you continue the work that you have begun within us until you bring it to the day of completion? We ask this for Jesus' sake. Amen.